There was a 1992 a movie that's one of our family's favorites called Into the West. Gabriel Byrne, well-known actor, is in it. It's the story of an Irish father. He's a widower, and he's got two little tykes, I'm guessing maybe 10 and 5 years old or so, named Ossie and Tito. And he's sort of an ex-gypsy, poor, no money, lives in a tenement someplace in Ireland uh, with other people from sort of the same financial straits and uh, doing what he can to raise these boys, not all that well or successfully. Now, everybody else in the tenement building is like them, sort of penniless in their own welfare. And so one of the ways to get a little bit more from that welfare check is to claim more children than you actually have. And so on a certain day, Tito and Aussie are going about their routine there in the tenement area, and the Murphys are going to be checked up on, Tito and Aussie Riley and their friends, the Murphys. And the Murphys round them up along with some other kids, and they say, hey, listen, the welfare worker is going to visit today to make sure that we have as many kids as we've claimed. So when they're here, this is what you're supposed to do. You say your name is Murphy. You're Murphy today. So sure enough, that day the welfare worker comes and they line these kids up, the Rileys and other kids with the Murphys and the Murphy crew. And little Tito, the little fella, he knows what he's been told to do. Your name is Murphy. So they come down the line and they're asking each kid, what's your name? They get to Tito and they say, what's your name? And he says, Murphy. And he's, he's got it. He's done it. Murphy. And the guy says, no. No, not your last name. What's your first name? Well, now he's stumped because they didn't tell him what to say. Do I give my real name or what? And he, he stops, he pauses, he thinks. And then with real conviction, he says, Mr. Murphy, my name is Mr. Murphy. <laughs> the guy's like, whoa, okay. Now, of course, the truth is, Tito <laughs> Riley is not a Murphy. And even if he calls himself a Murphy, he's not a Murphy. And if the Rileys... And the Murphys call Tito a Murphy. He's still not a Murphy. But it's important to the Murphys that Tito passes a Murphy. And there's something to be gained by the, Mur- by the Murphys if Mr. Tito can become a Murphy for the day. As you think about this this morning, does changing the name of a person or a thing change what it is? Does changing the name of a person or a thing change what it really is? You remember Shakespeare said, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And that's true. You could probably think of a number of things. If you change the name, the thing would remain what it is, a person, a thing, an object, whatever you might think of. But on the flip side of that, if we name something a certain thing, does that make it that name? So if we say, Willie Shakespeare's rose, if we say, well, a violet's a rose too. If I call a violet a rose, does it make it a rose? Does it take on the hues and the aromas of a rose? Or does it just remain a violet misnamed? We're talking about naming things, their identities this morning. We're in the third of a four-part series on the Manhattan Declaration. If you're here a couple weeks ago, Larry McFall introduced the Manhattan Declaration, sort of gave the background, who signed on, who hasn't, what's the methodology and why that's come out. A week ago, we looked at issues of life. 
And specifically in each of these areas, it's sort of looking at not just the topic of life, but what in our culture threatens life. This morning we're looking at marriage, marriage and family. And so it's not just a focus on marriage and family itself, but what in our culture and in our time is a threat to marriage and family. This declaration, by the way, sorry, I was, I was trying to print out your handouts this morning and my, my printer was eating them up and putting them out in uncollated order and I threw them all away before I came. So like last week, I meant for you to have a handout. It's not here. So you're going to have to really bear with me as I read. Sorry. This is a lengthy reading session this morning, a little bit like last week, only more so. The declaration takes two and a half pages. This is the longest section of the declaration is the section on marriage or marriage and family. And I'm going to read from that. You can read this online. Uh, You can certainly check up on it. I'm editing this as I read through for brevity mostly. But even if you had your hand out, I had to number paragraphs so you could read them in the order I was taking them in as I've sort of parceled this out just to try and take it in sections. But we'll do this this morning, God's design in marriage, some of the threats to marriage and family, and then the call to Christians to support, essentially, God's view of marriage and family. So, put your uh, listening hats on, can we say it that way, and uh, stick with me this morning, okay? Again, apologies as we get started here. First, God's design in marriage, and I'm quoting now from the Manhattan Declaration. They start with Genesis 2, verses 23 through 24. Excuse me. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. They continue, In Scripture, the creation of man and woman and their one flesh union as husband and wife is the crowning achievement of God's creation. In the transmission of life and the nurturing of children, men and women joined as spouses are given the great honor of being partners with God Himself. Marriage, then, is the first institution of human society. Indeed, it is the institution on which all other human institutions have their foundation. Vast human experience confirms that marriage is the original and most important institution for sustaining the health, education, and welfare of all persons in a society. Where marriage is honored and where there is a flourishing marriage culture, everyone benefits, the spouses themselves, their children, the communities, and societies in which they live. Marriage is what one man and one woman establish when, forsaking all others and pledging lifelong commitment, they found a sharing of life at every level of being, the biological, the emotional, the dispositional, the rational, the spiritual, on a commitment that is sealed, completed, and actualized by loving sexual intercourse in which the spouses become one flesh, not in some merely metaphorical sense, but by fulfilling together the behavioral conditions of procreation. The truth is that marriage is not something abstract or neutral that the law may legitimately define and redefine to please those who are powerful and influential. No one has a civil right to have a non-marital relationship treated as a marriage. Marriage is an objective reality, a covenantal union of husband and wife that it is the duty of the law to recognize and support for the sake of justice and the common good. If it fails to do so, genuine social harm follows. That's the declaration. 
my input in this will be longest in this section, I believe, and, and forgive me again, I'm going to rely heavily on my manuscript this morning. Marriage was one of God's greatest gifts to Adam and Eve and to mankind. And even after the fall, this would have been true before the fall, even after the fall with all the problems and the challenges that we face in marriages, that's still true today. God's gift of marriage and family by His design is one of God's greatest gifts to humanity. So in the creation passage, it says, Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, Adam said. A man leaves his parents, he's united to his wife. The two become one flesh, one new unity. They're of the same substance. If you remember in the creation account, Adam's put to sleep. Eve's taken out of his side, formed from his ribs, so that they really are of the same substance. But there's this great diversity between the two of them too. So that when Adam sees Eve, he knows that's his counterpart. She's from me, but she's very different from me. And therein lies the strength. Marriage was God's design in his creation. We didn't create marriage. We inherited it. We can't define marriage because we didn't originate it. We can do no more change the nature of marriage than we can change the nature of the rose or the violet, by the way, apart from genetic engineering. If you grow a rose, you get a rose. If you grow a violet, you get a violet. We don't change those things. Calling marriage by a different name doesn't change it. And calling something God doesn't call marriage doesn't make it a marriage any more than calling Tito Riley Mr. Murphy makes him a Murphy. Marriage. God created men and women, marriage and family, a man and a woman forsaking all others to form a new unity for a lifetime producing children out of their love for each other is God's marriage by design. I want to talk briefly about two things related to this uh, marriage by God's design. Uh, it, It was his to design. Think of this back in the Genesis 1 creation account. When God's getting ready to make Adam and Eve, man on the earth, the consummation of the creation account, he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And by the way, there are, the, the terms for God are plural. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And part of the deal is this. When God fulfilled the creation, the the consummation of the creation of the heavens and the earth is mankind on the earth. It's God's image bearers on the earth. They're not animals. They're not stars. They're not anything else unique as all those elements of creation are. The image bearers of God on the earth, that's the consummation of his creation account. And it's man and woman. It's male and female. It's a man joined to a woman forming this new unity. And in part, there's lots of ways in which mankind bears the image of God. Uh, Part of it is this plurality. We know that God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So that when God created man in His image, it's interesting that Genesis uses the plural terms. God as a plurality creates humankind in a plurality. And it sort of goes along with this. The trinity exists in eternity, or, or however you get past time, The Trinity that always was, always is, always will be existed in this loving 
uh, diverse, complementary relationship within the sphere of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So that when God reproduces His image bearers on the earth, there's this same sense of God's producing this loving, diverse, complementary relationship within His image bearers on the earth. So when God designs this family, this marriage in this family, it reflects the essence of the Trinity. It's diversity with unity. It's different members that complement each other. And it's in these loving bonds in which each member of that union means to bless and serve and honor the other. So that when we're talking about marriage by God's design, we're talking about something that reflects who God is as a trinity. And this is one of the huge reasons in my mind why when we talk about changing what marriage is, you're sort of arguing against the, the plate, the, the, the very essence of who and what God's called us to be as humanity and husband and wife and families is based on who and what God is. So when we try to redefine marriage in the family, it's as if we're trying to redefine who and what God is. It just won't work. We're made in His image. We are image bearers of the triune God. And marriage and family is supposed to reproduce that trinity. And think of this also. The trinity existed outside of time and outside the creation of the universe that we know, independent of any, anything else, anyone else, and happy to do so. And yet, at some point in time, this when time is created, if we could say it that way, the loving relationship within the Trinity reproduces life. So the Trinity reproduces image bearers on the earth that can share relationship with the Trinity. And when God makes families, marriages on earth, they have the same sense of this loving union reproduces life. So that when men and women marry... Out of that loving relationship they have, life is produced. That's just like the Trinity in the creative act related to the heavens and the earth and their image bearers on the earth as well. So when you think of marriage and families, you've got to remember that we are Christ's and God and the Spirit's image bearers. So by our very essence and by the very nature of marriage and family, we bear the stamp or the mark of God himself and his nature. Diversity and unity and this very complementary loving relationship within itself that then reproduces life because of that loving relationship within itself. God blessed us in creation and he made us like himself. Now, you not only see this in Genesis in the creation account, but when you get to Ephesians 5, which is the passage most people are familiar with, you see the same thing again. You see it in the relationship of the Trinity, but you see the same thing again related to Christ and the church. So in Ephesians 5, at verse 23, this is a passage similar to Colossians 3, by the way, in which Paul's talking about family relationships, and he's describing them, and what do they look like, and what do you do if you're a husband or a wife? What does that look like? In Ephesians 5, he says, the husband is head of the wife, and then he adds, as Christ is the head of the church. Then at verse 25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then verse 31, he quotes back from Genesis, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become 
one flesh, following up at verse 32. This is a profound mystery. This unity in marriage, Paul says, is a profound mystery. And then he adds, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So on one hand, you read the creation accounts and you see that when God stamped us with his image, the Trinity is reflected in the nature of marriage and the family. You get to Ephesians 5 and you see that again, the relationship Christ has with the church is meant to be mirrored in the loving relationship that a husband has with his wife and a wife has with her husband. And just as you see in Christ this sacrificial love for his bride, the church, you see the same thing in marriage, that the husband is called to have this sacrificial love for his wife, this redemptive love for his wife. And just as the church is supposed to follow Christ's lead and honor him, the wife is supposed to be supportive of her husband. So that in creation, you've got the image of God stamped on us like the Trinity, loving, diverse relationships, any unity, that out of that love produces new life. And you get to the New Testament and you see this image of God is intentionally stamped on our marriages again and our families because we see that Christ and the church is represented by the marriages on the earth. So we're image bearers reflecting the Trinity in the very nature of marriage and family life. And then marriage and family life is again supposed to reflect the kind of loving, sacrificial, and supportive relationship that Husbands and wives have reflecting Christ's relationship with the church. The definition of marriage may be debated in the public arena and in politics today, and certainly it is, but we can no more change what marriage and family truly are than we can change the nature of God. Two, for the declaration, they cite the problems... Uh, two things in this. One is the those elements in our culture that work against God's design for marriage and families and also some of the fallout related to this. So they say under the problem where the marriage culture begins to erode, social pathologies of every sort quickly manifest themselves. Unfortunately, we have witnessed over the course of the past several decades a serious erosion of the marriage culture in our own country. Perhaps the most telling and alarming, the indicator is the out-of-wedlock birth rate. Less than 50 years ago, it was under 5%. Today, it is over 40%. Our society, and particularly its poorest and most vulnerable sectors, where the out-of-wedlock birth rate is much higher even than the national average, is paying a huge price in delinquency, drug abuse, crime, incarceration, hopelessness, and despair. Other indicators are widespread non-marital sexual cohabitation and a devastatingly high rate of divorce. They continue, we confess with sadness that Christians and our institutions have too often scandalously failed to uphold the institution of marriage and to model for the world the true meaning of marriage. I assume this might be in reference to the ordination of homosexuals and church leadership over the last several years probably among other things. We understand that many of our fellow citizens, including some Christians, believe that the historic definition of marriage as the union of one man and one woman is a denial of equality or civil rights. They wonder what to say in reply to the argument that asserts that no harm would be done to them or to anyone if the law of the community were to confer upon two men or two women who are living together in a sexual partnership 
the status of being married. First, the religious liberty of those for whom this is a matter of conscience is jeopardized. Second, the rights of parents are abused as family life and sex education programs in schools are used to teach children that an enlightened understanding recognizes as marriages sexual partnerships that many parents believe are intrinsically non-marital and immoral. Third, the common good of civil society is damaged when the law itself in its critical pedagogical function, that is the law as a means of teaching people what is or should be, becomes a tool for eroding a sound understanding of marriage on which the flourishing of the marriage culture in any society vitally depends. And you guys know, if you read the paper or look around at all, our culture has by and large has jettisoned what we took for granted 50 years ago, a Judeo-Christian ethic. We've left that a long time ago. Probably at a practical level it would be hard. Certainly politicians and others say we are unequivocally not a Christian nation, but certainly in our ethics, I don't know that there's a Christian ethic that is promoted sort of as a norm throughout the nation any longer. With this fallout, and there's lots of things that could be said along here, but just a few related to the problem and what it produces. Uh, children raised without the consistent influence of fathers. Uh, this, is, this is huge, 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 huge. If you look at the statistics that they mentioned up here, out of wedlock birth, a single parent household statistically are the greatest uh, method of defining who will live in poverty. Single household families are directly tied to poverty levels. Also, single family households, and generally this, this is in vastly so, these are households headed by women, not men. Uh, the children grow up in uh, hugely exaggerated numbers to be involved in crime, uh, drugs, uh, behaviors that we would all say are detrimental to themselves and the culture at large, direct statistical tie to families without fathers involved, or at least fathers on a consistent basis. If you think of gang activities, you know, if you have strong families, gangs aren't a a threat or a problem. You know, for a lot of the kids in the large uh, cities, Gangs are the alternative family. And the, the, the thug gang leaders, that's, that's the guy's father. He's the guy that lays down the law and provides security. Gangs are an alternative to families because the families don't exist for most of these guys where they're coming from. Legislation uh, around the country, uh, we've, we've got states certainly that are recognizing civil unions, if not marriages, of lesbians and homosexuals currently you think, too, of cities like San Francisco that by legislation will not do business if you don't comply with their guidelines for sexual orientation, civil unions, etc. This is something that uh, the whole area, with other elements of, of our society, the whole area of marriage and family and these kinds of repercussions and fallouts, we're just going to see escalate, I think, in huge numbers and huge effect because that's what we're sowing. Those are the seeds that we're certainly sowing at this point. I think the crop that's going to come up is not to be underestimated by Christians at least. Think of this too, though. There's a sense in which we're saying uh, we simply want the freedom to make choices for ourselves to be happy. What could be wrong with that? And then ask yourself this. Has society and has culture and have these families, do you think, has our happiness quotient risen 
in the last 50 years? Are we a happier nation than we were before? Are families happier than they were before? It's not happening. So even if we say that we're giving each other the liberty to pursue life and pursue happiness in however they want to define marriage and family too, the truth is we're not a happier people. We're not a happier culture. And the statistics, whether you're looking at crime, out of wedlock birth rates, etc., it's all going downhill. We're, we're headed to the trash can in all these areas. We'll hang our hat on this last one, this call to action. If we just described the problems, wouldn't leave us much hope. But they, in each of these areas, have a call to action as well. So... The declaration says, insofar as we have too easily embraced the culture of divorce and remain silent about social practices that undermine the dignity of marriage, we repent and call upon all Christians to do the same. That's novel. That's a novel approach. We, should, we call Christians like ourselves to repent of our failures in this area. To strengthen families, we must stop glamorizing promiscuity and infidelity and restore among our people a sense of the profound beauty, mystery, and holiness of faithful marital love. By the way, as I'm thinking about this, we must stop glamorizing. In my mind, I'm thinking about what are we watching as families on TV? What's the music we're listening to? What are the movies? What are we taking in? Christians wouldn't tell you they intentionally glamorize immorality. But maybe the choices we're making as families do. So maybe the books we read, the magazines we view, the movies, etc. Maybe that's what they're talking about. As I apply this to myself, that's where I would apply it. They continue, we must reform ill-advised policies that contribute to the weakening of the institution of marriage, including the discredited idea of unilateral divorce. Uh, very briefly, a Touchstone magazine is, uh, like the Declaration, is a magazine that's written authored by evangelicals, Orthodox, and Roman Catholics. And while there's much in it that I don't uh, either agree with, it's from a different take theologically, they had an article on unilateral no-fault divorce uh, last year that was devastating, talking about the impact no-fault divorces had on our culture and on wrecking families. It was... Uh, eye-opening in in a really serious uh, sense. Uh, if my wife wanted to divorce me tomorrow, uh, she could, and there's not a thing I could do about it. I have no recourse. And this is going all the time. And the state states, by the way, have money to make through divorces, and they're making money through divorces. And the state becomes your surrogate, generally for men. The state takes over your role and tells you what rights you do or do not have as the husband and the father of the family that formerly, perhaps the day before, was yours. It's not yours anymore. No-fault divorce, unilateral divorce, has, has wrecked families all over the, the country. We must work in the legal, cultural, and religious domains to instill in young people a sound understanding of what marriage is, what it requires, and why it is worth the commitment and sacrifices that faithful spouses make. We have compassion for those disposed, they say, who are disposed towards homosexual, polyamorous, uh, loving many people at the same time, conduct and relationships. We respect them as human beings possessing profound, inherent, and equal dignity. They share the image of God. And we pay tribute to the men and women who strive, often with little assistance, to resist the temptation to yield to desires that they, no less than we, regard as wayward. 
We stand with them even when they falter. That is, we're not trying to throw stones at folks who are failing in the area of morality when they're saying we recognize that as a fault. It's not what we want to do. These guys are saying as a declaration, we want to stand with them and support them. We no less than they are sinners who have fallen short of God's intention for our lives. We no less than they are in constant need of God's patience, love, and forgiveness. We call on the entire Christian community to resist sexual immorality and at the same time refrain from disdainful condemnation of those who yield to it. We talked a little bit about this in this, the area of life last week. Uh, we are those who have been forgiven much. And so we're not throwing stones with Jesus and John 8 at the adult woman caught in adultery. Uh, we want to be redemptive in our interaction with those around us. So we want to call sin, sin, but we also want to be redemptive in the way we're interacting with people in that arena. They wind down, and so it is out of love, not animus, and prudent concern for the common good, not prejudice, that we pledge to labor ceaselessly to preserve the legal definition of marriage as the union of one man and one woman, and to rebuild the marriage culture. How could we as Christians do otherwise? So just as Christ was willing out of love to give himself up for the church in a complete sacrifice, we are willing lovingly to make whatever sacrifices are required of us for the sake of the inestimable treasure that is marriage. And let me close there the declaration by borrowing from Kent's arena next week under religious liberty, just this towards the end. They say, because we honor justice and the common good, we will not bend to any rule purporting to force us to bless immoral sexual partnerships, treat them as marriages or the equivalent, or refrain from proclaiming the truth as we know it about morality and immorality, marriage, and the family. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about a couple things here, but before I forget, you know, if you're a pastor in Canada, you can be thrown in jail for talking, uh, for saying things that we're saying this morning in this church. Pastors in Canada can be jailed because it's against the law to say that something is sin, someone else's lifestyle is sin. Oh yeah, and it's being done. And my suspicion is the development of things in the States, we're going to see more restrictions put on Christians in the church in the future than we have right now. So when they talk about a willingness to sacrificially stand up, again, we talked about this last week, I think for us, we're like, that'll never happen here. I think it will happen here. And we're like, we don't have to worry about that. You need to be thinking about it. What could standing up for Christ's cause, proclaiming the gospel first and foremost, but what could standing up for Christ's cause in any of these arenas cost us? And have we taken measure of the cost and are we willing to obey anyway, be his spokesman and his representative anyway? As I read the call to action, I confess it's the first one that I just, I think is uh, what we need to hear the most. And by we, I mean you and me. I mean Christians in the church. They said, insofar as we have too easily embraced, we, that's Christians, that's the church, that's you and I in this room, have too easily embraced the culture of divorce and remain silent about social practices that undermine the dignity of marriage, we repent and we call upon all Christians to do the same. Now guys, any studies you read, any of the samples taken, we, that means us, that means Christians, we sleep around before marriage just like everybody else. We divorce at rates equal to the culture around us. We, we Christians, 
And we communicate a lack of valuing God's gift in children by putting them at the end of our hit list of appliances, cars, and houses, just like everybody else. If you take measure of the church, those who say they're Christians following Christ, we look just like the culture around us. So their first call for me, that's sort of, that's where I'm landing. The church, we Christians, we've got to change our mind on this stuff. Now, maybe we're sitting here this morning, we say, that's not me. But I'm thinking, it's probably closer to home than most of us would be willing to, to think or to say initially at least. I'm convinced our foremost response, if you read this online, think about this later, listen to this on the website later, is you're thinking about a call to action related to marriage and family. Just start with this one. Just start with, Lord, I determine before you to honor marriage and family the way you do. And I just want to not disgrace your name by the way I live and what I say and how I encourage others in this arena. That I just don't want to diss you, Lord, your image, your plan for marriage and family by the way I live. Guys, if we did this, this would go a long way. This would go a long way. Just to be in a demonstration at least. Whatever the world chose to do, they would see a clear demonstration of God's image in us and Christ's relationship, loving relationship with the church. If we just did this, God save us from pathetic, anemic views of marriage and commitment. And guys, the swan song in in our culture, if you're married, you know this, there's greener pastures elsewhere. There's somebody thinner, better looking, more money, more understanding, more patient, more loving, more kind, whatever you want to think. Someplace else, it'd be better than where I'm at right now with this spouse. You know, we got to get over it. Loving, committed relationships that reflect Christ's love for the church and the love of the Trinity for each other. This is what we're called to. We've got to get rid of those views, those low views of marriage and family and embrace God's call to us as Christians to be this mirror, these image bearers of God and of Christ in the world through our marriages and our families. Ask yourself this, if you're married this morning, Would your extended family members and would your neighbors and would the people who know you well, would they look at your marriage and say, that's what I want? Would the people who know you well, know your marriage well enough to know what makes it tick, what that looks like, would they say, that's the kind of marriage I want? They're so satisfied. They're so content with each other. He's so loving. She's so thoughtful. Is that the kind of marriage you have? Is that what other people would say about your marriage? And if it's not, what do you need to change? You're only one half of a marriage too, some of us in here, one half of a marriage. We can't live life both sides of a marriage, but what are we bringing to the marriage and what does our marriage look like? Are we reflecting Christ's love for the church and the love of the Trinity for itself? If you're single, there's a lot of singles in here too. A lot of adult career-age singles Are you holding out for God's best? Or are you just playing the game with everybody else? Are you holding out for God's best? Are you committed to saying, Lord, I'm going to wait on you to provide the marriage, the spouse, the family that would reflect your love for me, Christ's love for the church? Are you holding out for that? Are you encouraging your single friends to do the same? And guys, listen, you know, when Kathy and I got married 30 years ago, 23 and 22, those were the average ages of marriage. Today, I think it's 27 and 28. 
There's a lot of gals who would love to be married sooner than they are. More gals than guys, by the way. And we were at a conference, Kathy and I were years ago. I've said this before, but it was hilarious. There's a forum, questions and answers. Al Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, is talking. And these gal, this gal raised her hand. She says, I'm so frustrated. There just aren't guys around to marry. And Al Moeller's response is, these guys have got to grow up and get married and be responsible, productive citizens. And the women in this conference erupted in cheers. <laughs> you know, part of, this is not part of this morning's thing. Guys, we live in a feminized culture. We have feminized young men in our culture. They don't know what being a man looks like. So you're trying to tell young men that have been told that they're no different than women. Now you want them to be men and to get a grip on life and to act like men and marry women and be responsible husbands and fathers. They haven't been trained for it. Many of them in this culture. Feminized culture produces feminized men. And and this is not a good thing. Manly men. Womanly women, this is what we're after. This is a good thing. But whether we're married, is our marriage an example to others? And if we're single, are we holding out for God's best? And are we praying about that? We talked about a building this morning in Sunday school hour. You know, that's something I've wanted for a long time. And I keep telling the Lord about it. And you know, I don't hear much back. But I keep giving him that frustration and that desire, and I want to wait on him and honor him because I know what he provides will be best. We need to do the same with marriage. And by the way, along this line, uh, career age or adult singles often feel like the third wheel at church, at functions, at family gatherings. And if you're an adult single, let me just encourage you to get over that. You're not a third wheel. You're not a third wheel. You're right where God wants you. I take it doing what God wants you to do. And to families, we need to be very intentional about including career-aged adult singles in all the things we do and in our life as it's being lived. Uh, We have had, I I couldn't count probably how many adult or career-aged singles have been part of our family over the years, and we're blessed that they're there. Our lives are richer because of their, we're blessed, and they're blessed too, because they're included in something. We don't treat them as third wheels, and we've got to get over this. Whether you're an adult single or you're a family, we need to understand, especially in the church, God's called us to be family writ large, in the family, the body of Christ writ large to each other. So if you're a career-age single, you need to have those relationships with other career-age singles, certainly, but you also need to have the same things with families. And families, you can't just hang out with people just like yourselves. Unity and diversity goes in the body of Christ as well. We need to be including adults in our mixes as well. That's the way God wants it. That's appropriate and helpful for each other. The call to action, they include also in the arena of life, public and political opportunities. We talked last week, voting for for life candidates seems to be a no-brainer. We were talking about life last week. The same thing would hold in this arena of marriage and the family. It doesn't cost us a thing to go to the voting, the poll booth, and vote for candidates who most closely reflect our values and the values that we think will be helpful, beneficial to the culture that they represent and that we live in. This seems to me to be a no-brainer. Challenging the thinking of those who don't accept God's design. 
When I say challenging, <clears throat> I don't mean getting in debates. I mean asking questions. At least asking questions. So if you're friends or folks at work or if you hear the political debate, we can always ask questions, right? So if a marriage is more than or different than a man and a woman, what, what is it? So maybe in some places today, it's a man and a man. That's a marriage, civil union, whatever it's called. Or it's a woman and a woman. Well, then it's fair to ask, well, if we're redefining marriage, well, how far can we redefine it? So how about if a brother and a sister decide to cohabit? Is that okay if that's a marriage, if we call that a marriage and give it the rights of marriage? Um, how about polygamy? Because I love those three women and they love me. That, that sounds legitimate to me when I'm defining marriage. That's my idea and, and it makes me happy. Is there a problem with that? This uh, other one, um, uh, can I marry my pet? Would that be okay? Would that be a marriage? I'm very serious. This is proposed by a professor in the Northeast United States. Is it okay if marriage includes me and my pet? Because I love my pet and my pet loves me. So is this marriage. So if we're about the business of redefining roses and violets and Murphys and Rileys, can we redefine marriage to be anything we want it to be? And then, of course, the question becomes, if marriage is anything we want it to be, then really it's nothing at all. If marriage is everything, then it's nothing. It doesn't exist. We've redefined it out of existence. Let me, let me wind down with this. I love the creation account, and there's, there's sort of two versions in there, in Genesis 1 and 2. And in the creation account, when God has created Adam on day 6... Before Eve has come along, do you remember what he does? God marches the animals before Adam, right? And he says, Adam, my friend, give these guys some names. And so Adam starts naming the animals. Now, why is that significant? Significant for this reason. God said, Adam, you're my image bearer on earth. I'm giving you domain, dominion. You're my authority on the earth. You rule the earth in my name, in my stead. And guess what? When you have authority over a thing, do you know what you do? You name it. The person who names has authority over the thing, the person they name. This is why parents give names to children. It's not just because the little tykes are too young to pick out a nice name for themselves. It's because the parents are the authority over them. When we name a thing, we're saying, at some level, we have authority over it. Now, there are a great many things we can name, and that's fine. If I write a book and I name it, whatever I name it, that's fine. That's my creation. I've defined its parameters. I've made it, and I give it a name, that's fine. If I compose a song, same thing. When we have children, for better or worse, we get to give them names. Sometimes better, sometimes worse, right? We don't have a right to rename and redefine what we don't have authority over. And guys, this is the, the weird thing. When we as a culture say we're renaming and redefining marriage, we are saying we have authority over God. It's ludicrous. We can't redefine and rename marriage because we don't have authority over it. We didn't create it. We didn't originate it. It's God's creation. It's His to name and define as He will. It's not ours. It's His. When we say marriage is marriage by God's design, we are recognizing God's authority. 
And when we say marriage is whatever I say it is, we are saying essentially, I am God. And guys, we're not. We're not. Marriage is marriage by God's design, by His doing. It reflects the Trinity. It reflects the loving relationship within the Trinity and the reproductive nature, producing life that you see in the Trinity, you see in the marriage and in the family as well. It's supposed to reflect Christ's love for the church. So you see, when we say marriage is something other than God made it, we're we're turning the apple cart upside down. We're saying God's not our authority. We're the authority. We'll, We'll do things and we'll say things as we see. This sounds a bit like Psalm 2 to me. God, we're throwing off your chains. We're liberating ourselves. We're becoming the people we've chosen to be. And you know, that just, it just takes you down the hole. A sin always produces death, can never be other than that. And when we fail, when we miss the mark, whether it's marriage, family, anything else, we don't get life, we just get death. To close... We need to humbly, prayerfully, persistently remind ourselves at the end of the day, it's God's prerogative to name and define our relationships. And we are called to humbly and prayerfully and persistently remind the world in what we say and how we live that God created us in His image and marriage and family, according to God's design, are part of His benevolent plan for us all. Father, I am amazed every time I think that you said you wanted to make us in your image, that we're like you in numerous ways, and that, Lord, that was your goodwill, no downside in it. Father, would you help us as Christians, as those who name you as our Father and Christ as our Savior, would you help us not to dishonor you in the way we think about marriage and family, the way we talk about it or mirror it, others. Would you help us to reflect your image in the Trinity and reflect the relationship Jesus has with us, his bride, the church? Lord, would you help us to speak up when speaking up is the right thing to do? Would you help us to prayerfully pursue these things that lead to life? Lord, would you help us to be salt and light in the culture and the time you've given us to live in? And Lord, uh, we just attest again that ultimately our only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ and His rule over the earth as well as our hearts and our lives. And we look forward to the day when Jesus returns and we would say again, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.